one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The men would strip off and reveal blue designs on their bodies. They'd evidently been wearing some kind of message to the gods. I don't need armour. I don't even need clothes. I can fight naked with the protection that I get from my gods. In this podcast, we're walking alongside the largest Roman artefact in the whole world. Over 70 miles long, interspersed with mile castles, barracks, forts and settlements. Built in a time before there were any such people as the Scots or the English. A formidable wall dividing this long island into north and south, highlighting Roman endeavour, ambition and sheer hard work. A powerful statement of intent declaring just how serious the Romans were about owning these British Isles. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. Last week you brought the Romans to the British Isles and took us with you to the incredible hot springs at Bath. Where's the next stop on our journey? We're on the boundary of the mighty Roman Empire, Paul, at Hadrian's Wall. And more specifically, we're on a part of this engineering marvel that has become known as Sycamore Gap. It's a place whose beauty can quite literally take your breath away. This week's destination is one that everyone's heard of. It's Hadrian's Wall, the great Roman monument, probably the greatest Roman monument in the British Isles, really without a doubt, 70 miles long, that stretches, sometimes well-preserved, sometimes not, from east to west across a, a narrowing of the Long Island of Britain. And 70 miles, that is some distance, isn't it? It, 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 it is. Um, you bear in mind, work commenced on it uh, in AD 
122. So it, it's, it, you know, it's 2,000 years old. Uh, the work was undertaken by the, the three Roman legions that were in uh, the, the British Isles at the time. They all, they all you know, contributed to this massive construction programme and it, it would have taken years to, to build it. And it was built under the reign of the Emperor Hadrian, hence Hadrian's Wall. And it's the most emphatic, extravagant boundary that the Romans created anywhere in their entire empire. It's 70 miles, give or take, from where the River Tyne enters the North Sea in the east to the Solway Firth uh, on the west coast. And nowhere else in the whole of their property, the whole of their territory that was the Roman Empire, did the Romans go to so much expense and effort to declare, this is ours. You know, this is our territory. And, and although notionally they probably told themselves that they were in control of the whole of the Long Island of Britain. In, in practical terms, they weren't really. To the north uh, of, the, of the line of the wall is the territory, broadly speaking, that the Romans knew as Caledonia. And they, they gave the name, you know, Caledoni to the people that they encountered in the north of Britain. Because, of course, at the time Hadrian's Wall was built, there was no Scotland and there was no England. There was Britannia, which was a Roman province, but the Romans had decades, centuries probably, of, of contact with people to the north of the Wall, and they, and it was, they were troublesome. Uh, they were maybe less enthusiastic about taking on Roman ways than people further south, who probably had had longer exposure to the Roman Empire anyway. It, it, a bit less Roman ways were, would have been less familiar to the people in the north. And the Romans being very pragmatic, you know, once they had been in, in Britannia for a period of time, and had surveyed and assessed the place for what it had to offer. They had calculated that uh, it would be expensive to keep enough garrisons of men in Caledonia to keep it controlled, given what they were likely to recoup in the way of, you know, crops or gold or, or other things that the Romans wanted. So in effect, someone had done a calculation, if you like, on the back of an envelope and thought it'll cost this much to control that place and here's what we're likely to recoup as profit and it's just not worth it. And, and so they, they drew a line, which was Hadrian's Wall. About 20 years later, they had a go at, at pushing the line further north and they created the Antonine Wall which Hadrian's Wall is stone. Ant the Antonine Wall was a timber and heaped earth and turf. It wasn't, it wasn't so permanent. But it, it didn't work out for the Romans. It was too troublesome for, for all the same reasons. It was too much bother for not enough practical return. So they abandoned it after not very long at all and withdrew. And then for the, until the Romans finally left the British Isles, the, the significant line was Hadrian's Wall. But people tend to think of it being built to keep people out or to keep people in, depending on what side of the wall you're standing on, in that kind of uh, the Game of Thrones idea. You know, here's the wall and further north are scary people that we've got to keep out. But the wall was punctuated all the way along its length by gates because it was a way of keeping track of who was coming and going. So it was porous. 
So people from the north with things worth trading for would have been allowed through. And also people would have gone from south to north into, into Caledonia, again, for trade or for all sorts of reasons. And having the wall and the gates meant that you created these sort of pinch points so you could see who was coming and going. And of course, that lets you tax people. You know, you can collect tax on people coming and going through these gates. And people would have just naturally gone through the gates rather than trying to go over the wall. Because the wall was patrolled and it was manned and there were forts all the way along it. So trying to get over it, like trying to get over the Berlin Wall, made it much more practical, safer for people to go through the gates and just pay their taxes. So, so that's really how it functioned. It, it was a way for the Romans to see who was coming and going and they could make sure they were getting their 10% or whatever of, you know, of whatever goods and services were moving back and forth. So it, it's come down to us. People think about it as being the, the border between Scotland and England. But of course, when, when the wall was built, there was no Scotland and there was no England. It was just, that was about as far north as, as the Romans felt it was worth patrolling in any serious way. And then beyond it, they just, they used the wall as a way to, to keep an eye on who was coming and going. All of Hadrian's Wall is now, and, and has been for the longest time, within what is officially English territory. And people think of it, some people think of it as marking the border, but it doesn't. It's quite a bit further south than the actual border. Interestingly, in a way, um, very early on in, the, in this podcast, we talked about the Lewisian Nice uh, and Callanish stone circle uh, and the fact that the Lewisian Nice had, had come to the surface of the planet three, three, three and a half billion years ago, close to the Antarctic, and then at the speed of growing fingernails, it had drifted north until it eventually arrived, you know, where it is now on the west coast of Scotland. And in that geological process of all the various bits coming together that eventually made the British Isles, you know, they, they came together, you know, millions of years ago. And the point at which the travelling parcel that, that becomes Scotland came together with the travelling parcel that becomes England and Wales where they bumped together strangely enough is pretty much the line of Hadrian's Wall you know so when the Roman surveyors went out looking for the line that they were that the builders were going to build upon they, they obviously saw you know there was a narrowing it was, it's a narrow point in the so it's a shorter distance to traverse with masonry to cross with masonry and it's it's a consequence of the geological processes that put the island together in the first place but strangely enough, the Roman surveyor's eyes were, were caught and held by this location. But the point really is to be aware of how much it mattered to the Romans. You know, we think of ourselves as being, and we are, right out on the edge of the Roman Empire. You know, the Roman Empire was clustered around the Mediterranean and Italy. And and then the further and further you got from, the, from those central points, the, the less Roman it became. You know, it, it kind of blurred a little bit back into the cultures and the ways of the indigenous populations. And out, out here on the edge, on this, on these islands floating out in the in the Atlantic Ocean, you know, you're right out on the end of the supply chain for the Roman Empire. But still, in all, the Romans invested more than they invested anywhere else in creating this this line, this wall. And it, when it was finished, when it was brand new, it would have been a, it would have been white. It would have been covered in lime and mortar. 
So you'd have seen this wall from a distance. It would have been a bright white line, many feet tall, many feet wide, a spectacularly extravagant boundary. But it shows how much uh, stamping their authority on this territory mattered to the Romans. That's really the beauty of it. Now, when, when it comes to vi- how do you visit Hadrian's Wall? Because obviously, you know, it's it's 70 miles long. How do you visit something that's that size? So you, you, you would say, you, you know, you pick a, you pick a good spot. And the, the spot that I am most impressed by, for all sorts of reasons, is uh, Sycamore Gap. In that part of the north of England, there's a, a very sinuous shape to the landscape. It rises and falls. It, it, it's a bit that looks like you'd imagine the back of the Loch Ness Monster. It's this kind of wriggly shape. And that's ancient. That's, that's the product of ancient geological forces. When the ice was covering the landscape during the Ice Age, as the ice began to melt, uh, water on the, on the surface of the ground was, was under a lot of pressure from the from the ice above, it was pushing down as the ice melted, and it was forced out, squeezed out into the landscape. And it, the force of the water in these runoffs created runnels in the landscape. These have, it's left behind the channels that the melting water was, was squeezed out through. So there's several of them. There's one called a Milking Gap. There's one called Rapishaw Gap. And then there's Sycamore Gap. And it's so called because for the longest time there has grown in this hollow, in the U-shape, a sycamore tree. And it will be familiar to anyone who has seen the Kevin Costner, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves movie. Him and Morgan Freeman land at the White Cliffs of Dover and then they go for a wee walk. And by lunchtime they're jumping over Hadrian's Wall at Sycamore Gap. You see the sycamore tree. So it's a neat trick if you can do it. They've done it in the the course of a couple of hours while walking and chatting. They're at Hadrian's Wall from Dover. So it'll be familiar. And the sycamore tree is is part of what makes that place so special. You can see the wall. All the masonry is still there. It's been been beautifully maintained and restored so that it looks like a, a massive wall. And growing beside it is this sycamore tree. And it's, it's one of the most, it's probably the most photographed tree uh, in Britain. And it won, it won something, I think it was like the Woodlands Trust Tree of the Year. Who knew there was such a thing? But 2016, the sycamore tree in Sycamore Gap on Hadrian's Wall was regarded as the best tree in Britain. So it's quite, it's quite the iconic spot in the landscape. It's right beside, uh, or very close by, what's called a mile castle. So part of the structure of Hadrian's Wall was every mile or so, that's mile pace in Latin, that's a thousand steps by a soldier. That's what gives you a mile, mile pace, a thousand steps. So that's what a mile is, more or less. And every, every thousand steps along the wall, the Romans built a castle, a little fortlet as a, as a, as a strong point as part of defending the part of defending the wall uh, and it's it's a uh, mile castle 39 so it's the 39th mile castle along Hadrian's wall so some people before it was called Sycamore Gap it was called Castle Nick it's like a nick out of the landscape 
So in the past, before the sycamore tree took root and grew, that location was known as Castle Nick because it was this this nick in the landscape right beside Mile Castle 39. You get to it, by the way, in terms of getting there, because it's a point on a 70-mile long wall, you take the B6138 road (laughs) (laughs) and you follow the signs. You'll see brown signs because you're in Hadrian's Wall territory and you come to Sycamore Gap and you just get a sense of the Roman endeavour because it's a challenging bit of landscape. You know, it's a, it's a steep drop into a U-shaped form and then and the wall just snakes down into it and goes up and across it. You can see what a challenge it would have presented to the surveyors and to the masons and, the, and then the, the legionaries, the soldiers who had to come in and actually do the grunt work of constructing it. That's why it's such a useful place to visit because you get a real sense of, of how much ambition and how much sheer hard work the Romans put into creating this extraordinary boundary, this statement of, of ownership. Uh, and you get a real standing there looking at it after the best part of 2,000 years. You do get a sense of, the, of how serious the Romans were about owning the British Isles. landscape, nature and history all come together at Sycamore Gap. It's a great combination, isn't it? It is. You know, you're looking at something, obviously, that you know we, are, that we associate with a, a particular period of time, the four centuries or so of the Roman occupation of Britain. But it's, it's highlighting and taking advantage of a much older feature in the landscape. So you're looking at a, a landform that's created by geology over the course of hundreds of millions of years. And then, more recently, along come the Romans. Interestingly, in fact, you know, the Romans... You know, when we talked about Bath and when the Romans spoke to the locals there and found out that they thought it was that the hot water was something to do with a goddess they called Sulis, and the Romans very sensibly and pragmatically thought, well, that sounds a bit like our Minerva. They're talking about a goddess who's about health. Well, we've got one, and we call her Minerva, so let's bring them together. So they, they, were, they were useful at, 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 at reassuring the people among whom they had arrived that there was a possibility of of cooperation and collaboration rather than just a sense of having been conquered or invaded. You know, they, they, they made room for those ideas and those places that were already important to the people. And archaeological excavation, just a couple of hundred metres or yards south of Hadrian's Wall, archaeologists found the, the foundations of a boundary that was Bronze Age. So, th- thousands of years potentially before the Romans arrived and built their wall, there may have been another boundary line built much, much earlier. And when the Romans saw that, they adapted that boundary for their own. You know, so again, they were thinking, you know, this is a division, this is a a line in the sand that the locals are are already aware of that has mattered before. Let's Let's put our boundary here. So it might be another demonstration of the of the sensitive and sophisticated way that the Romans approached the, the business of occupying new territory. You know, they, they just built on to and augmented and, and collaborated with sometimes what was already there. And I suppose it would make them less, uh, you know, less intrusive in the eyes of, of those amongst whom they had arrived. So I, again, this is another way in which visiting Sycamore Gap and visiting Hadrian's Wall is useful when you're thinking about the Romans because 
again, you, you, you begin to understand them as people, as thinking modern people. You know, there's like planning goes into this. We don't want to fight if we don't have to. You know, too much aggravation is not good for business. It's just going to be expensive. How do we softly, softly catchy monkey? And so you can see the thinking that goes into it where they're saying this will be, you know, we can work with these people and we can take seriously and preserve, say, a boundary that already matters to them, has mattered in the past. And we're just going to say, right, well, this is just our, this is just our version of something that's already there. And you can think as well, it also gives you the opportunity to think, obviously we're, people are preoccupied now as never before with borders and boundaries. You know, when you think about Brexit and you know, people talking about taking control of our borders and, and of course there's the ongoing strife about the, the border between Scotland and England and the, the demands from the Scottish National Party for a, another referendum about Scottish independence and, and drawing another, making another boundary between people. And there's something instructive about knowing that although Adrian's world doesn't, never has marked the boundary between Scotland and England because those two entities didn't exist when Hadrian's Wall was built, it's very close, really, to the national border between Scotland and England. And it, it, there's something instructive in knowing that we're, we're kind of preoccupied with a line that was drawn not by us, but by a foreign occupying force that drew that line, that people are still arguing about 2,000 years later. And it wasn't drawn by Scots or English. Because they didn't exist. Because they didn't exist. It was drawn by Romans. And, and then when the Romans left, the Romans bailed out. They had trouble back home. They had all sorts of logistical challenges and you know, pressure on the, on, the, on the empire from various uh, uh, barbarian peoples. And they, they abandoned the British Isles in the middle of the fifth century AD. And that left a power vacuum you know, for, the, for as long as anybody had thought about it, the Romans were in, were in charge and suddenly they were gone. And so people got pulled into the, to the gap. And so it's in the southern part of, of Britain and on the east coast, Angles, amongst others, came in to, to try their luck in that absence of Rome. Here was this rich territory just across the North Sea, let's go over and you know, and see how we got on there. So the Angles came in, amongst others, and they eventually become the people who establish Angle land, which is England. But it's long after the Romans are gone. And then in the north, other people that are that are migrant and on the move are the are the Scots, who come from Ireland. Originally, now. The gap between Scotland and, and Ireland at its narrowest is only 12 miles. So there would have been people moving back and forth between Scotland and Ireland forever, thousands of years. So there would already have been contacts. But in the, you know, in the, in the 600s and the 700s, the Scots, the Scotty clan, arrive and establish themselves in that territory. And in due course the territory becomes known as Scotland. And Scotty or Scot is probably an old word that's descriptive of the sight of a ship's sail on the horizon. 
That's a Scot or a Scotty. So it may have been a, a, a word that was used to describe a, a seafaring people who were in the habit of coming and going in ships and boats. The Scots. So the Scots were, they might have been regarded as pirates or at the very least they were regarded as a seafaring people because they were arriving in the territory from Ireland in ships. So that becomes Scotland. Who was in that territory before they arrived? That's one of those fantastic questions. The Romans uh, described the people north of Hadrian's Wall as the Caledonians. But that was a, a group term. They must have encountered some people who were calling themselves Caledoni. That would have been one group. And Caledoni has etymological roots that, that seem to suggest something like stone or rock. So it might have been the name that was used by a people who either looked around and knew that they were part of a rocky landscape, or they may have considered themselves to be hard, hard as rock, hard men. But, but Caledoni, as the Romans understood it, may have referred to a tribe that came from the mountains or they were, or they were hard fighters. But there were lots of other people making up the population of that unruly northern territory. And the Romans also noticed that they covered themselves in uh, either tattoos or body paint. Now, the, the Romans had, had encountered that before. In Gaul, which is the territory that, broadly speaking, we would call France, they, in the past, they had encountered barbarians who painted their bodies especially when they were fighting, especially when they, when they were, would be in battle with the Romans, the men would strip off and reveal blue designs on their bodies, which, which they'd evidently been wearing as some kind of message to the gods. You know, maybe by putting these, ta these marks either permanent as tattoos or just paint, but they were saying to the gods, protect me, and I don't need armour, I don't even need clothes. I can fight naked with the protection that I get from my gods by decorating my body in this way. So then when the, the Romans then encountered it as a practice amongst the people north of Hadrian's Wall. So in their own Latin language, they called these people picti, painted people. Pict has the same root as picture. A painting is a picture. So it's got the same root, picti is painted. So they called them the painted people or the people of the designs. And so... While they were, while the Romans were here, and long after the Romans were gone, those people began to call themselves Picts. So, in answer to your questions, the Scots from Ireland would have arrived in the territory that was occupied by the Picts, the painted people. And so, the Scots and the Picts fought it out, and sometimes there were alliances, and sometimes they were at war until around 900 AD, when when the whole thing was subsumed. By, by the name of, of Scotland. It, 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 be, it begins to become known as Scotland, but only after hundreds of years. So when you say who was there <laughs> when the Scots arrived, it was the painted people, which is to say the Picts. Who might have been in their own individual groups anyway. Endless, endless numbers of tribes. That, that territory north of the wall, as, as would have been the case with the territory south of the wall, it, would all, it was all tribal. It was all a patchwork of disparate tribes that the Romans arrived amongst. There's all sorts of names, Catavalloni, Atrabates, uh, Silurians, the Caledoni. The, the, there's the tribes all over that the Romans were having to deal with. And 
there's something instructive in these times when people are, you know, rightly anxious about ideas of immigration and, and people worry about, you know, being overwhelmed by the invader. You know, if we let too many people come, those swampers, you know, will be will be will be swallowed up. If we let too many people come, it'll be theirs and not ours anymore. That's a, a modern concern, and it, it, it's interesting to know that it, it's been happening always. You know, so if you if you if you take yourself back to the time when there were Romans calling the shots for four hundred years, and then they were gone, and into that gap came Angles and Saxons and Jutes and coming in the other direction from Ireland came the Scots and they began to, to affect the place now the Romans called the, the people Picts now that means that that's not what the people called themselves that's a soldier's nickname now soldiers always do that wherever soldiers go and encounter people especially people they're fighting with soldiers apply nicknames to the enemy or, or at the very least to the native indigenous population. So whatever those people called themselves, it wasn't picked. But it, gradually, the name stuck. And when the Ang then when the Romans left and the Angles came in, amongst others, and the Anglo-Saxons obviously became the dominant presence and, and, and Angle land was eventually the product, the Angles encountered the indigenous population just as the Romans had. And they, as, as more and more Angles came in, the, the local population got pushed west because the Angles came in from the east. And gradually, gradually, by gen generation by generation, they pushed the locals into the west. And a lot of them end up in what we call Wales. Okay? Now, Wales is from the Anglo-Saxon word Welash, which means not us. Wow. Who, who are those people over there? I don't know, but they're not us. Welsh. So, so you can't really call yourself Welsh because to be Welsh is to be a foreigner. So the Welsh, the Welsh call themselves Cymru, which means it, it's got the same roots as companion and community. It, 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 all, it literally goes back to people with whom you happily break bread. Companion is with bread or bread with. And, and Cymru, which is how the... Welsh people understood themselves before the advent of the Anglo-Saxons, but the Anglo-Saxons called them Welsh. And now that's how they're remembered. So in this patchwork of modern Britain, you've got people calling themselves Scots, and that's a nickname for the people that arrived by ship. And it was applied by the Picts, and the Picts weren't Picts. <laughs> that was the nickname that had been given to them by the Romans. And the Welsh aren't Welsh, because that means foreigner. And yet we've all, we've all acquired and accepted these names that are not of our own making. They're names applied to us by invaders or colonists. And so the very names are reminders that this has always been a mongrel place. It's been a place where outsiders have come in and mixed and sometimes got the upper hand and, and taken control. And that is a process without end. You know, then the Normans came in, you know, and they took over the Norman conquest, 1066. You know, and they bring in the French language and French ways. 
and everyone accepts them. And they build the castles and they do all the other things. So you could call it reassurance, but if not reassurance, it's a simple fact of life that our islands have always been the end destination for people coming in from outside. And they mix and they mix and they mix. And that process of immigration and mixing has been going on not for hundreds of years, but for thousands of years. And, and, and for want of anywhere else, somewhere like Sycamore Gap, somewhere like Hadrian's Wall, that line that was drawn not by us, but by them, it, you know, it's, it, when you're feeling very territorial about this is ours and, you know, protect our borders, which is fine. People are, are entitled to feel a sense of ownership about their homeland. That's right. But it, it's also important to know that you're, you're just the recent the most recent tenants of rented accommodation. There were people who felt just as strongly about it at other times, and they were supplanted or overwhelmed or, or subsumed or, or just in, in, in a whole manner of mixing. The, the population changed. So it's worth remembering that what's happening just now whether you whether you like it or not, and whether it's brought to a halt or whether it's allowed to continue, that's you know that's a that's a debate for us and for politicians and for all the rest of it. But it's not new. This is already a place of mongrels. And these isles are still very tribal in many ways, aren't they? People from different parts can be very distinct from each other. Yeah, and you find yeah, and you find survivals and and strange. Reminders of, of when other people consider themselves to be a, a tribe. In, in Scotland, you know, where I live and where I grew up, a baby or a child is called a bairn. You know, B-A-I-R-N, bairn. But people in Newcastle talk about bairns as well. Now, obviously Newcastle's England. Scotland's Scotland. But both recognise the use of the word bairn. And likewise, people in a lot of people in Scotland use the word wife or wifey, not necessarily to describe a married woman. It's just a woman. Do you see that wifey over there? Now you're not you don't necessarily know if she's married or not, but she's a woman. So she's a wifey. Well likewise, you get the same thing going on in the northeast of England, wife, an old wife. So it's on either side of the border between Scotland and England, but it's a reminder of the of a continuity, of a, of at least a dialect, you know, and words and a way of talking that was used on either side of the line. In 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 Nidersdale, in 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 the north of England, there are still people that remember when shepherds counted uh, Yantan Edra Tedra Pip, Odra Bodra, Edra Dedra Dick. That's one to ten. And if you go all, if you go over the north of England, you still find variations on that theme these fragments of another counting system. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo is one, two, three, four. Part of a counting system that's pre-Roman. It might even be pre-Celtic. No one knows how old it is. And it's only survived into the present day because at some point it got fossilised in a children's rhyme. You stumble across in the landscape, sometimes in the form of place names, sometimes in the form of, of words and dialect that the people use that are reminders of the past. You know, so, so the past isn't just made of, you know, old books and castles and things in museums. It, 
to some extent, the past is alive all around us in the words that people use every day and in the words that they use to describe the place, you know, where they live. And so these are all useful reminders of the endless process of mixing. It's like an irresistible force. You know, that idea of the, the, the unstoppable force and the immovable object. So you've always got that going on with the resident population at any given moment, quite rightly, feel a strong sense of ownership. This is mine. But a thousand years ago, people completely forgotten now felt just as strongly that they owned the same place. And a thousand years from now, it'll all be different again. And there's something fundamentally instructive and educational about Hadrian's Wall. Because you go there and you're standing on a divide, which is, if you can half close your eyes until it all blurs, it's quite like the boundary between Scotland and England. But it wasn't drawn by Scots or English. It was drawn by soldiers nearly 2,000 years ago who were just trying to find the most effective way to collect tax from the people moving back and forth through their occupied territory. And yet now people are prepared to fight to defend that line. <laughs> it's nothing to do with us. It's foreign to us. It was made by foreigners. It was made by Romans. The Romans came as conquerors, but they stayed for nearly 400 years. So they, in turn, feed into and become part of these islands. Yes, and Rome is, a, is although I've spoken before about it, I've always been a bit wary of them because of the idea that they brought civilization to us. I, I've always kind of, something about me in the primitive part of my brain always gets irritated by that idea because I'm so aware of the fact that the world into which the Romans arrived in, in the early part of the first century AD was already incredibly complicated and sophisticated. You know, with those tribes, with their territories, with their customs and culture and their art and their, their predilection to make war on one another or to establish peace through marriage alliances. And they had their centres of, of population and they had trade with the wider world all of that was going on. They had religion. They had a way of understanding their place in the cosmos. And the Romans simply arrived as another tribe. A very powerful tribe. A very well-organised tribe in matching uniforms. You know, like Star Trek. You know, they all came wearing the same stuff and they had better technology. <laughs> and they had a plan. I find it very helpful to remember that this has been a place for, well, let's say since the ice melted 12,000 years ago. This has been a place where one group of people after another have just ended up and they've either been welcomed or they've been driven off or they came in a fashion that was well organised enough that they were able to take over like the Romans or like the Normans. But it's always been a place that has drawn one group after another and it always will. And while you can quite rightly feel a sense of ownership and feel territorial. There's an inevitability about being replaced at some point further down the line because that's what tends to happen. 
looking at the sinuous landscape, the beautiful sycamore tree, and the wall, this incredible feat of engineering, does actually being there help transport you back in time? Yeah, it brings it all to... It's, it's just, I, I often find that it's one thing to read stories, to read history, to get it from books, and to get it from documents and letters, but I find there's an added dimension to going and thinking about the past in specific locations. And, and when it comes to something like the Roman Empire, of course it's so big in terms of geographically its, its expanse. It lasted for so long. There was the Republic for, for 500 years and then there was the, the Roman Empire as we understand it for another 500 years. And it affected everything and everyone for all of that time over this vast landscape. And so it, it can be like an impenetrable mass. You think, how could I come to terms with? How can I begin to understand what the glory that was Rome meant? But to me, it's helpful to, to have a single place to go to. Now, the baths in Bath, down in the southwest of England, that's a good place to go because, as we talked about before, you get that sense of people doing things that we recognise, going somewhere glamorous to be seen, you know, to, to swim, uh, you know, and to take the waters and to have entertainment and to strike deals and do business. And also they, they did petty things like someone would steal their towel or their or their clothes and they would put a, a few lines on a little piece of lead saying, please God, take revenge on them on my behalf. So you see the pettiness of, of human nature. So Bath lets you humanise the Romans. And then... Another little identifiable spot in the landscape is Sycamore Gap because you can go there to this wonderful, photogenic, impressive location, this sweeping, rolling landscape with an ancient man-made wall going across it like a, you know, like a snake. And then the, this wonderful tree that has been there for however long that makes it even more appealing to the eye. And you can stand there and think about what Rome means. And you can think about ownership and boundaries and lines drawn in the sand. And yet the Romans are gone. When they were here, they thought they'd be here forever. You know, they came to stay. They came to stay forever. But after 400 years, their time had passed. Even Rome came to the end of the road. Even the Roman Empire finished. And it's just useful to think in those terms that we think our world is forever. And it's not. It lasts as long as people believe in it. I mean, ultimately, you know, um, the historian Kenneth Clark wrote in Civilization that civilization comes to an end, not because of pressure from the outside necessarily, it's not because of barbarians at the gates. Eventually, a civilization loses confidence in itself. It, it, you know, what causes a stock market crash? You know, what caused the great crash of 1929? The, the gold was still there. The lumber was still there. The oil was still there. But a moment came where everyone lost confidence at the same moment. And the consequence was a massive recession that took years to recover from. But ultimately, all that had happened was people stopped believing that everything was all right. And that is eventually what happened to the Roman Empire. More than anything else, 
people were exhausted with the idea. The, the necessity to keep believing in Rome wore people out. And they stopped believing it and thinking it. And so the idea just was extinguished like a candle blown out in the wind. That's what brings down empires. It's exhaustion and a lack of confidence. And it's a reminder that that is why ultimately nothing lasts forever. Not the Egyptians, not the Greeks, not the Persians, not the Romans, not the British Empire. And these things go over the hill into history, not because they get defeated by outsiders. They fall apart from within because people stop believing. And in the moment that people stop believing that a country exists, it's gone. Paganism and Christianity colliding. Bellerophon riding Pegasus to slay the fire-breathing Chimera. Zeus and water nymphs. A new cult on the rise, stretching right across the Roman Empire. Secret symbols. An incredible building, revealing nothing less than the arrival of Christianity in the British Isles. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. Check out my Instagram account, Neil Oliver Love Letter. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book, It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. The music's by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 